Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 15 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is Glenn Fay, Research Fellow in the Economics and Education Programs at CIS. Glenn and I will be discussing three Australian coronavirus release, relief programs, Job Seeker, Job Keeper, and the Recovery Preventer Program. Well, so far, Recovery Preventer is not an official uh, government policy, but we are at risk if, uh, if we go down the wrong track of ending up with essentially a recovery preventer. One of the one of the big issues that that with the current program is essentially one of the benefits too, and that's the wide coverage. So the fact that such a large part of the economy is now being essentially propped up through government support. And JobKeeper is probably the, the biggest factor in that because JobKeeper, um, at the moment we estimate that's around six in 10 businesses that essentially are wow. surviving on, on the back of government. Um, Wait, I, I want to, re- like, six in 10, more than half of all businesses? That's right. Now, okay. it's, important to, it's important to know. So there's some sectors in which that's more present. So... Um, firms in in construction, firms in hospitality, but also there's a real skew towards relatively small businesses and even micro businesses and non-employing businesses that make up a large number of those of those firms that are recipients of JobKeeper. Um, I guess what's important there is that the, the, real, the real genesis and motivation for JobKeeper is partly to keep firms afloat and also partly to ensure that uh, workers remain attached to their place in employment. So then as, as the recovery uh, becomes, or there's an unwinding in those restrictions, that then there's a, a much less, much fewer frictions within the labor market in terms of matching employees and employers. And in some respects, that makes a lot of sense. You know, like a, uh-huh. uh, if we're, if we're to, to take that on its merits, I mean, that makes some sense when you face that uncertainty around closures, particularly when firms were forced to be closed due to government-imposed uh, lockdowns, uh, it certainly was a sensible approach to handle that. I mean, that's not to say that there weren't design issues. I mean, it's, it's really important to note that there were issues in the, the design and the administrative rollout that has somewhat undermined the effectiveness of, the, of that particular program. So some of those things viewers will be familiar with, and that's, okay. that's elements like the flat rate of payment. So basically, anyone that became eligible for the job keeper the job keeper payment received the identical amount, regardless of what their regular earnings were, or regardless of if even if they worked only a few hours a week ordinarily. So, so a typical approach taken in many countries is that these sort of payments would be eighty percent of ordinary salary, something like that. But that wasn't done here. Well, I wouldn't say it's that typical because it's actually there's some novelty to a wage subsidy scheme. I mean. There's only a few countries that have gone down that path, and but those that have have used have benchmarked it essentially to uh, regular average earnings or to economy-wide earnings, which is one uh, one alternative approach. And one thing I will note is that the government's actually introduced um, or made an announcement that uh, that they intend to maintain the JobKeeper package uh, past the estimated end date of September. So there was a ri- there was a risk that with the program unwinding in September that there was what's been called an employment cliff um, that may take place. Um, so it does seem that government has a, a motivation to keep that program going. But one one promising sign in that is that they they've recognised that there are some flaws in the way that it 
that um, the program's designed. Um, so some of the uh, some of the items that they've signaled that they're willing to uh, come to come to terms with is the broad targeting. They've met, they've noted they've noted that there's a need to be a bit more targeted than trying to hit all employees, right. and also that the amount itself is um, reduced from the current fifteen hundred a fortnight to. Uh, 1100 a fortnight now those details are fairly loose because we have a formal announcement on all that and on july 23 which is fast approaching us uh, but that will be a really critical juncture about uh, whether we you know whether we do in fact end up with a recovery preventer or not now i'm no economist and, and maybe we shouldn't get too wonky here but it seems to me that if everyone's worried about a, a cliff coming in september well, aren't we now just worrying about a cliff coming at some later date? Wouldn't wouldn't a better approach have been to scale back the uh, make it tighter, tighten up the eligibility so that fewer and fewer businesses over time would be eligible? I, I think a business had to lose a certain percentage of its uh, revenue to qualify. Has that revenue threshold been reduced as time goes on or increased rather as time goes on? Well, that's that's what's been signaled. That's one of the one of the items in the reform that that does appear to be happening, and that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, of course, it's it's unsustainable one to have a large payment. It's unsustainable to have as broader coverage, and of course, it's unsustainable that firms that are no can't evidently point to uh, facing a, a revenue shortfall uh, to maintain that eligibility for the scheme. And and so and you're right in terms of pushing out the uh, where that cliff happens, some in some respects, it, it mirrors the health the health um, discussion around you know trying to maintain you know to flatten the curve in a sense. That that same that same logic also applies in in the employment space because you know to some extent we need to allow s some reallocation markets to happen, and some of it, if it's pushed out, also that might lessen some of that impact too. Right. Oh, one thing you mentioned in your pay, in your article is that there is the possibility that these programs are preventing people from accepting jobs that employers are trying to fill. Is it really true? I, I just find this so hard to believe because people are so desperate for work. Is it really true that employers are having difficulty filling jobs? Yeah, well, I mean, so there's a few things that have happened recently, and one of those is that there has been a real bounce in job advertisements, which is a signal or a leading indicator that businesses are really trying to ramp back up production. And of course, that's not true everywhere. There's there's spatial differences, there's industry differences, and all those sorts of things. But it does appear that that in a gen in general sense, firms are trying to reopen, uh, and there are those that are trying to reopen seem to be having trouble to recruit. Um, and that was around half of businesses reporting difficulty in hiring said a lack of applicants was the primary factor. And, really? it, in, and that, that to me is a, a sign that there are there is a, a sense of a recovery taking place. Right. Now, of course, that recovery can't happen unless workers fill those positions. And in part, one reason that might be inhibiting that, now there's a few, one might be the incentives factor, and that's because uh, individuals are, are receiving relatively generous income support at the moment, but also that there's with the JobKeeper package in particular tells employees that they have a job that they will return to. Now, the truth is that there's probably many of those firms that will not actually make it to September or beyond, so those jobs may in fact not exist. So rather than currently seeking work, they're actually 
sitting out the sitting out the job search process. So really, we're just prolonging pain rather than uh, reducing it. Right. Now, we'll go to viewer questions in a few minutes. And please do put your questions there in the YouTube box. Or if you're listening on Facebook, feed the questions through via Facebook comments. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, I am going to point out that we rely on viewer support. So please support the CIS. There will be a support link going into the comments section on YouTube and Facebook. We'd love to have your help if you're already a member. A little top up never hurts. If you're not a member, membership started just 40 Australian dollars. And I note for our international viewers, that's Australian dollars. So it's a little cheaper if you're in the US or somewhere else. We really appreciate the, the effort. I mean, it keeps us going. A CIS, I should point out, does not accept any job uh, keeper support. So people at CIS are having to be funded entirely through your donations. The CIS does not accept any government support of any kind. Uh, Glenn, what other options are there? I, I, I mean, we, it's easy to criticize, but you know, what do you do? People need help. Uh, what should we be doing instead of the boosted job seeker in the new job keeper program? Look, it's a really good question. I mean, and at the moment, to be fair, there are much more bad ideas being presented than there are good ideas. Uh, one element is, of course, uh, it, it does seem reasonable to assume that some level of income support will be necessary uh, in order to uh, keep those firms that are likely to uh, emerge uh, at the other end of this, keeping those employers engaged in the sense that JobKeeper currently does. So there's some sense in now, and ideally, ideally, ideally we wouldn't need a program like that, but it does seem that there will still be some elements of the economy being shut down that will require some level of intervention of that kind. So of course, with you know most, you know many people will be concerned about the uh, the shutdowns that have been reinstituted in Melbourne in particular, um, and note that that actually that's that's in, uh, that kind of stringency and lockdowns actually is is in part will also halt our attempt to recovery because it means that the justification of something like JobKeeper becomes uh, real again. Uh, you know, so we're, that naturally is going to restrict our ability to move forward into alternatives. Now, I mean, as far as I think we have to be really honest when you when you when we're talking about this, that the the nature of some of the bad ideas out there are really bad ideas. Like these are not these are these are ideas that really are seeking to uh, really opportunistically look at the the circumstances we're currently in and use that as a platform for really bold reforms. Now, bold reforms can, can be really good, um, particularly <laughs> when they when they shape you know, incentives and create a more productive economy for the long term. But that's all that's really not the way that many are, many are trying to push. So there is a really strong push for bigger government as part of the solution. So a lot of a lot of this a lot of the proposals out there right. are to see larger government involvement in terms of spending, in terms particularly infrastructure, but also uh, industry protection, uh, bailouts of firms even and industries, but also you know related more to our discussion so far, attempting to really redesign the welfare state, you know, to okay. to see, and that's some quite radical proposals that are that start with extending JobKeeper and JobSeeker and and related programs, but actually seek to take that and extend those into even bigger, um, bigger programs, things like job, gar job guarantees, right. 
things like universal basic incomes, these kind of schemes are, are genuinely being put forward as um, alternatives. Well, we'll get to universal basic income in the questions. I know that's already coming up. But I do want to ask you, I know that you're involved in the CIS Pandemic to Prosperity program. And there's been a paper released in that program today by uh, CIS a Senior Research Fellow uh, Robert Carling. Do you know a little bit about that paper or what is the program doing? Yeah, so there's well, a few things to note there. So Pandemic to Prosperity is a project that's engage researchers across our organization, seeking to uh, both help to paint a picture of where the pandemic has taken us so far and, and then also to what kind of policies do we need in order to emerge from the pandemic and move toward a more prosperous country. And Robert's work this morning, and um, I can, can um, attest that it's an, a fantastic paper. And in that paper, Robert talks about the economic consequences and challenges faced uh, from the pandemic. Uh, so part of that discussion, of course, is taking stock of what, what has the economic impact been. Um, and, and I think that there are, there's some good news in that and some bad news, of course. Uh, when it, you know, and that does shape how we then uh, come to terms with what policies do we need to come out of this. Uh, so I guess on that, and I'll, I'll, I'll note really briefly before we get to other questions, that in, the, in a macroeconomic sense, we've not We've not done as badly as first feared. We've not done as badly as other countries. And so far, we haven't done as badly as other recessions. So, so far, most of that is good news. That doesn't mean that we necessarily copy and paste what those policies are to go forward. We actually need to evolve those policies so that they make sense for the next stage into the recovery uh, elements of this. And to do that, we, you know, there are, there are elements that policy can get in the way and, and responding to the nature of markets that are going to be important in making sure that happens. So particularly when it comes to markets, there's, there's an issue about what, what, what the Melbourne shutdowns have shown us is that there's a fragility about recovery. Recovery is not linear. We can't just go, we start reopening and therefore that, that V-shape recovery that is often hoped and talked about um, isn't looking as, as likely as we would, would as we'd like. So it's more about coming to terms with what a COVID safe economy looks like. So that's something that is able, an economy that's responsive enough to when health outbreaks occur, that there's ways that the economy is able to respond to those so that business as usual can be maintained as best as possible. Uh, there's also, when, it, when we think about emerging from the pandemic and moving towards prosperity, there's other threats around potential for a term that's now really intro introduced to our lexicon uh, called scarring. And this scarring is a real, is, is talked about in a few senses from uh, that we need to address in order to, to come out of this. So one of those is around consumers. So you uh, viewers will note that the savings rates at the moment for households are abnormally high. And in part, that's a reflection of the uncertainty that people are experiencing. So uh -huh. as a result of that, people are holding on to cash. So that that is a word of warning for those that <coughs> seek, you know, big um, stimulus packages for cons for consumption purposes. The other is around workers. So workers, you know, we, we've got to be realistic that there's um, the capability and uh, ability of workers to move from a period of unemployment and potentially a long term, a relatively long term of unemployment, and being uh, job ready and motivated for work. Um, is, is something we need to 
uh, in, in sure we've got the incentives in place to do that. Uh, but also that firms and industries have got, particularly those that rely on a pipeline, so these are things like uh, construction industries and so on, uh, but also housing and, and, and others, where we need to, where, where a pipeline and confidence is really needed to, to move things forward, uncertainty is really proving to be uh, a problem and, and really scarring the, the outlook in those areas. And I, I know that Blaise Joseph and your colleagues in the education program are very concerned about scarring in student progression, that students will have a permanent impact on their progression due to the coronavirus uh, restrictions that have been in place that have impacted their education. Uh, look, I, I just want to say a few hellos. Uh, Rosalind says, thanks for the tech team. That means you, Emily. Uh, Joanne just wants to say, hey, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, Glenn from Joanne. We are going to go to the questions. We have a couple coming up from Joseph and Bartholomew. Uh, let me first just take this opportunity once again to plug membership in CIS. Of course, like the YouTube video. The more likes we get, the more likely this video is to be shown to other people and have a bigger impact out in the YouTube world. So like the video, subscribe to the channel, become a member, hit that support link, $40 to become a membership uh, for a membership or... If you join at the $250 level, look what we have for you. <laughs> That's right. You can get your own copy of Liberty and Liberalism. Now, this is a special offer that I'm making. And I will actually sign your copy, your personal copy of the book with whatever you know, greeting you'd like in the, in the book. Send it out to you for joining at the $250 membership level, specifically in response to this program. If you're already a member and you're a $40 member, upgrade to the $250 membership, you have another $210. Again, I'll make sure the book is sent to you. Now, that's not for all members. That's for people who join now in response to this call. So we'd love to have you as a member of the Center for Independent Studies. And I'll tell you, if you are one of those very generous members, they'll probably send you a book anyway, if you ask. But my signature is for joining in response to our On Liberty program, free copy of Liberty and Liberalism. We do have questions. Uh, Joseph asks, do you think the Morrison government's announcement that income support will stay beyond September is inadvertently going to lead to more unemployment? Yeah, so this really gets to the point I was making earlier that, you know, in a sense that we know there's economic pain to be had. And part of the policy decision is about, do we try to front load that or back load that? So at the moment, we know there are a lot of jobs that that, do, that literally don't exist, that JobKeeper in particular is keeping uh, notionally alive. Now, I'm, would be, I'd hesitate to call the to, to, um, to assess the government's response too harshly at this point because we don't know the full details, but to the extent that there's a, a tapering in, in the amounts uh, targeting of, of, the, of the scheme to uh, notionally where, where that's needed or where we think there will still be lockdown impacted areas of the economy, then there's reason to believe that that this won't be, uh, this, this will reduce or at least um, flatten the curve of that pain perhaps. Uh, but we, I suppose, we don't quite know yet what the details are, but we would encourage overall, uh, the, the more we can taper off that income support broadly, the, the sooner we can hit recovery stage. Now, what is CIS proposing as a positive step? I, I mean, it's one thing for, you know, uh, free market think tanks to say, you know, no, no, no government spending, no government intervention. Well, 
what's the positive message? I mean, other than hands off, what are you recommending that the government do? Well, well, naturally, with with uh, with uh, with a shock like this, we really need to grow our way out of the situation that we're in. You know, we can't we can't rely on government to to do that for us. So one element of that is, of course, the incentives around labour. So that's that's what I've been talking to a little bit so far, and that getting participation rates. So getting people that are currently assume they have a job but don't really have a job uh, seeking work. So there's been a, the lifting of mutual obligations and that that's things like having to search um, for a job while you're receiving benefits. Some of the lifting of, of those requirements uh, is welcomed. So the other thing that's really important here is that those that are out of work, we do actually need to be compassionate about what um, the conditions that they face. Many of them have been unemployed for reasons completely out of, out of, uh, at no fault of their own. So when it comes to policies that we would advocate, that's very much about, well, how do we help those employees find work again? Because it's, of course, from an individual and an economic perspective, and of course, from a fiscal perspective as well, a long, a long spell of unemployment is really not good news for anybody. So, you know, very much there's high rates of training and upskilling at the moment. So some of the government's response has been to introduce a lot more access to short courses and the like. So we'd like to see those those kind of offers quite targeted toward employment. And I mean, one issue that our welfare system hasn't been good at in the past is actually achieving outcomes. So while we haven't always had a, a, a big spending uh, approach, we've also been really poor at, at actually matching that to employment outcomes. So it does re it does require that we take a much um, a much more active step in in seek in actually seeing that people get long term employment out of out of this particular crisis. Right. Is there the potential for deregulation to spur economic growth? I mean, we hear a lot about this in ordinary times, but is it true that there are things that you know business owners would would expand tomorrow if only the dead hand of this of state regulation could be you know removed from their back and they could get going? Is this a practical way forward? There's there's no deny there's no doubt that, that deregulation is part of the solution um, and in a, in a few aspects. So one is yes to help expansion of business, um, and others it's you know reducing complexity so so it reduces disincentives for job create uh, for uh, firm creation, but also to make it easier. One thing that we often forget is that we've also got to make it easier for firms to exit. You know because that that dynamism is what's ultimately missing at the moment. So look, deregulation, absolutely. Uh, I, but I'm, I'm also, I also share that frustration that sometimes we talk about deregulation in a really broad sense and, and are not too specific about which exactly which deregulations would be most important. And in part, that's going to be shaped by what the economy looks like in the next few months. So if we continue to see easing of restrictions, then that's going to shape what kind of deregulations make the most sense. I mean, so far, a lot of the deregulation has taken place in some of the sectors that have been most impacted, those like hospitality and retail, uh, they've, they've seen quite significant uh, deregulations. I mean, others, other, other related interventions are things, uh, tax of course is part of the, has to be part of the conversation. So right. the CIS has also produced a great paper on, on why it's important that um, this, is, well, this is the time to reduce company tax because of course company tax is, is, a, is a huge impost to uh, firms 
starting and expanding. So uh, that that's also another initiative that, that we'd really be behind. Right. Now, if Glenn, if you'll excuse me for taking a break for just a moment, uh, July, Tuesday, July 14th is Bastille Day, and the CIS is staging its own revolution. It will be inviting Lionel Shriver and Brendan O'Neill to come speak to our own research fellow, Monica Wilkie. That will be at 7 a.m. on Tuesday, July 14th. I believe that will make it the first Bastille Day celebration of the day. Uh, I don't think, you know, just like Australia leads the world into New Year's, Australia is leading the world into revolution on July 14th. For those of you who do like to get up early, get in the gym perhaps, and you want something to watch while you're in the gym, put on those headphones, get some, you know, real excitement going while you're on the treadmill that will be lionel shriver and brendan o'neill 7 a.m on july 14th you can register now it's a booking you have to make uh, it's called the woke inquisition and that will be uh, that you can register on the website or in the youtube comments and facebook comments there is a link to register for that event highly encouraged glenn we have a question from bartholomew Bartholomew wants to know, what should the Morrison government do about the jobs that aren't coming back? Obviously, we're going to have to face this, that a lot of people who are on job, uh, especially people who are on JobKeeper, those jobs are not really going to be kept. So what do we do when those jobs at some point have to go? So one thing is we've got a signal to both firms and uh, employees on that. So We've got, to, we've got to make it easy for firms to actually wind up their business. So, you know, and that, that comes to, you know, matters around uh, bankruptcies and, and so on. So we need, to, we need to make it easier for people to, to be our employers to say, hey, it turns out, you know, market conditions have changed um, and I'm not, this, well, the business is no longer going to be viable. But there's also, there's also some, a role there for uh, those businesses that are recipients of JobKeeper at the moment to also, um, if they haven't already, and now many will have, but to, there needs to be a little bit more recognition that the, there are aspects that the world is changing somewhat. So where firms can adapt and innovate their way through this, government may, there may be a role in government to help to make that happen, or at least to help to signal that, that's, that for firms to survive, there may be things that they need to do differently. Um, but I mean, that said, we don't really want, we don't want, um, we don't want government getting involved in in how businesses uh, organise themselves. But for, even from workers, the workers' side as well, though, the last thing that we want is for individuals to assume that they've got a job to go back to when they really don't. So there really needs to be a level of signalling to employees to say to say that to to, can, to start that thinking about job search already, and also thinking about upskilling. Um, and to some extent, that's happening, but the, the, at the moment, there's not really the market signals to make that uh, move along. Right. Now, I'm going to ask you about education, uh, the education industry. My own job is a final question. But first, I do have a, que a viewer question about tourism. It's obvious tourism has come to a complete halt. It, it's essentially, the entire tourism industry is being supported by the government at this point. Is that something that should go on or should tourism in Australia be wound up for a few years and you know let it grow back when it comes back? Well, it may not be a few years. It'd certainly be at least this year for sure. But um, I think one, one thing to note is that there's tourism and there's, there's related industries to tourism. So much of the accommodation 
the accommodation sectors versus aviation and others. So one, we, we have to be careful when we break all of that down. And, and of course, retail and entertainment. And so the, when we talk about tourism, we actually have to break that up into the, the separate components. And I mean, there's elements that governments are seeking to address in some of those areas already. Um, in, mo in most part, there's what well, we can have a redirection toward domestic consumers for sure. And, and of course, many operators are already doing that. The probably the the good news, so to speak, is that many tourism operators are relatively small and easy to start. So and have relatively few overheads. So if you're an operator of and I'm thinking here of purely tourism services rather than those broader categories, if we're talking about, you know, operators that do a bridge climb, for instance, uh, those oper that operator is quite small and operators that, that organize tours and things like that, again, relatively small. Those bigger industries that are attached toward that rely on the, the inflow of um, tourists, there's that, that's where we've got some more difficult conversations to have about whether, those, whether their business models make sense in the medium term while we still have a lack of international travel. And that, that's really one that, that's going to be hard. I, I, I know government likes to get involved in virtually in all of those things, but they're, they're, I think government's got to be a little bit shouldn't be heavy handed in, in trying to work through that one. Right. Do you have any thoughts on early access to superannuation? Well, so, <laughs> there's a, more than a few thoughts on that. <laughs> well, do you have any uh, thoughts you'd like to share with us today? <laughs> so viewers will be aware that that in many respects, the CIS um, has not supported the mandatory superannuation scheme that that we all suffer. So. You might alternatively think of that as the mandatory confiscation of your income. Uh, one one problem with this is, or one you've got, you've, at the moment we've got individuals that are drawing upon that as part of their pandemic response, and that in some respects makes sense. If individuals want to access their own wealth, then that's absolutely there's really no role for government to get in the way of that. But the the probably the risk for that that I see is that. There is a plan for the superannuation mandatory rate to actually increase over the next few years. Um, certainly wouldn't suggest that that's a really good idea in this environment mm -hmm. because that will also act as a huge wage, uh, a wage suppression and a real wage cut for workers as we go through and at that, um, given that wages are, are not likely to have a positive outlook in the uh, near and medium term, I, it, would, it would be really poor policy, <laughs> I would think, to... Um, to seek to maintain the the increase in uh, superannuation guarantee. Okay. Now, Anthony wants to ask you about regulation reform, and he's citing a Brookings Institution paper on regulatory reform. Before I get too deep into the paper, are you aware of the paper? Have you read it? Do you know what paper he's talking about? No, I don't no, know the okay. paper. I so we'll have get to a live okay. uh, so, uh, update. <laughs> well, we'll have to we'll have to talk about it generally then, instead of specifically. But he's saying that the Brookings Institution is advocating uh, the promotion of competition in regulated markets, reduction of uh, uh, conduct restrictions, removal of outdated, inconsistent, and unnecessary rules. You know, the elimination of, of negative regulatory impacts. Now, I'm sure you'd be sympathetic to all of those ideas, but is there anything in there that you could comment on in particular? Well, look, you're right. All of those in principle make make a lot of sense. Um, but again, it's a, the trap that we <laughs> that I mentioned earlier is, is to to be caught in those generalities. I mean, one one example is that of green tape. You know, there's 
you know, there's a lot of uh, duplication in regulations when it comes to many elements of construction, but particularly large styles construction that that um, gets caught up in uh, red and green tape. Right. I mean, that that makes a lot of sense when you when you've got duplication and de sometimes deliberate duplication built into regulatory instruments. It makes sense to to cut those. But there's others around labor markets. So particularly uh, industrial relations is a really important area. So there's been some increased flexibility that's been introduced. Um, there's also some deregulation in a sense around some of the uh, restrictions on uh, the financial sector, particularly consumer lending uh, and business lending, of course. So some of the uh, relaxations in uh, in responsible lending requirements to, to relax those to make them uh, more appropriate to respond to the challenges make a, makes a lot of sense too. Right. Now, Max, our producer wants to prompt you to talk a little bit off topic about your work on school closures. And he's asking about the Melbourne lockdown, or look, I don't like to call it a lockdown. Anytime people are allowed out to, to work, to exercise, to shop, I don't think you can call that a lockdown, but everyone is calling it a Melbourne lockdown. Uh, do you think it's going to have a big impact on students' educational opportunities in Melbourne? Are schools going to stay closed? And is that going to be a problem? Well, there's, there's a couple of points to make there. One is, of course, yes, the closures has an impact, but also the disruption. So the the disruption is that going to school, not going to school, and going to school again, the, the disruption there for, for students is really significant. It's also really disruptive on uh, parents and, and parents' decisions about working and supervision of children. So I'll note that, that yes, schools aren't closed. They're, they're, they're still opening, but they're opening and operating remotely, um, which is a little different to closures uh, per se. But uh, Blaze and I produced a paper a, a month or so ago uh, where we did look at different states um, and looking at the duration of their, this time that they were closed, the likely impact that would have on students' achievement. And Victoria, because Victoria already had a very long, a lo very long period of closures, they were already some of the most disadvantaged students as a result of those closures. So this this will only, of course, exacerbate uh, that detrimental impact upon learning and uh, and also upon uh, labour markets too, because parents will be withdrawn from the workforce. Now, finally, I'd like to ask you a question about my own job. <laughs> I think that's a good note to end on. Of course, I work at University of Sydney. University of Sydney has a greater percentage of Chinese students and more reliance on international students and any university in Australia. With the new coronavirus upsurge in Victoria, the university's plans for bringing in thousands of international students just in time for the second semester are, you know, that, that's all gone now. That's not going to happen. What do you think about subsidies for universities? Should the government, I mean, universities provide an essential public service. Should the government be paying for my job? Uh, you know, should, should we have a you know, student keeper program to keep to keep the universities running until student numbers come back. Well, I will note that the university has been quite a um, quite a lot of debate about whether universities should be eligible for JobKeeper, and um, uh, and it turns out that that uh, virtually all universities are, aren't eligible. Um, a I don't, I don't, I don't, um, I don't agree that we should have a student keeper. I don't think that that would be a good a good result. And I, I don't see 
a strong justification for uh, government bailing out universities for their international sectors at all. Um, at the end of the day, the, the international sector is a segment of the student demand market. It's not all of it. So it's really important that universities have got the, um, the capacity within their business models to be able to shift to the changing environment that they're faced with. One element of that, of course, is to offer um, distance learning options to international students. I know that that's not going to be anywhere near as popular as uh, as uh, being on campus, but it is an option. Uh, but also, we have to remember that many universities are you know, very have got very large um, balance sheets as well. So there's there's a good reason to think that the universities of, of all um, enterprises are probably some of the best shaped um, in that respect to handle the, um, the current conditions. Well, I'll take some cheer from that. Thank you, Glenn Fay, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right, now I should remind everyone, we will be on hiatus next week. This wraps up season one of On Liberty, our first 15 episodes. We'll be back for another 15 episodes starting on Thursday, July 23rd. So we will have a week off, then return for season two. I'd like to thank our producer, Emily Holmes, for keeping us on the air these 15 episodes. Our executive producer, Max Hawk Weaver, and the director of the Center for Independent Studies is Tom Switzer. Thanks everyone for watching. We'll see you in two weeks.